This week's Escape Pod is sponsored by Scott Sigler's new SF thriller, Contagious. Available now in bookstores everywhere from Crown Books. Escape Pod 185 January 1st, 2009 Today's story, Union News, all about the sponsors, by Jeffrey Arlewinkel. Hello and welcome to 2009. Oh, and welcome to Escape Pod, too. I'm Steve Ely. Let's kick off the year right. We've got another Union Dues story for you this week. For those who haven't been following Escape Pod for long, Union Dues is the down-to-earth superhero series penned by Jeffrey R. Dorigo. And this one finally answers a few of the questions people have been asking about the Union and why it came to be the way it is. That's right, it's the grandest and most necessary of comic book conventions. An origin story. So, we present Union Dues, all about the sponsors, by Jeffrey R. Dorigo. Mr. Dorigo lives in New Hampshire with his wife and children, and is best known in his writing for the Union Dues stories, both here and at the excellent kid-produced science fiction podcast, Clone Pod. Clone Pod's running his Team Shikaragaki series about teenage Union members. Oh, and they've also got Union Dues t-shirts. I'll put the link in the notes. He also has a couple of zombie stories at TalesOfWorldWarZ.com, and he's done a number of commentary segments on the Writing Show podcast with Paula B. Finally, you'll remember that he had a heart attack a few months ago, and we put the call out for help, as he was without health insurance. With the support of all of you, and the words circulating through the potosphere, we raised over $4,500 for Mr. Dorigo's family. I've chatted with him, and I'm happy to report that his recovery is going very well. We'll have more words from him very soon. So, turn up the family radio, and remember to drink your rich chocolatey Ovaltine. It's story time. Union Dues. All about the sponsors. Part 1. The Wake, 2006. Arthritis is so bad now, it takes almost 45 minutes to get into costume. Not that it fits all that well anymore anyway, and I can barely walk, but that's another whole set of issues right there. My old bones haven't kept up with the layers of fast-fiber muscle tissue. The costume still looks good, though. The crimson splash behind the jaguar silhouette stretched across the accented enameled chest plate still pops, fresh and sharp, like it did when I first put it on in 1956. The armor is dented in places, and scratched, too. Each blemish, each scar, a punctuation mark in the story of my life. I suck in my chest and tighten the buckles before getting lightheaded. I don't have to wear the costume anymore, but it seems disrespectful to leave it in the closet for this one last mission. I get the boots on and struggle with the leather straps and silver buckles until my fingers feel like they're ready to fall off. I surrender and creak back up to standing position. Okay, screw the boot buckles, Jim, I whisper. This is it. Someone knocks at the door, then says, Jet's prepped and ready. I'll be there in a minute. Can I get anything loaded for you, sir? I glance at the open briefcase laid across the corner of my desk, but I've got everything I need. 
I pick up the silver frame with a little black-and-white photo of me, Frida, Alex, Paul, and Steve in our original Liberty League getup. Frida Freedom called me four hours ago. Her voice broke when she said the words, Alex is dead. I drop the frame into the case atop a weathered manila folder, then close the whole thing up before hobbling out towards the waiting jet. Part 2. The Liberty League, 1956 We'd never been on TV before. Hell, I don't think I've even seen a TV until now, with us all milling around in the green room, waiting for our cue to storm on stage. But here we are on Steve Allen. The big guests are Pat Boone, followed by a dance team named Augie and Margot. We're following Don Adams. It's not the premium spot in the lineup. That's Pat. But Alex says if we keep in the spotlight, we'll be headlining in short order. Pat's nice. Very big smile. Very friendly. Comes from Florida, same as Alex. He's on to sing Tutti Fruity and talk up some event for General Motors. Who are you guys with? Pat asks after admiring our red, white, and blue costumes. Barnum and Bailey. U.S. Army, Alex answers. Sponsorship, that's the way to go. Pat winks after a second of silence. Other singers and actors are tied to a studio, a record company. Not me, man, not me. Even if the singing thing tanks or the acting stuff dries up, I've got Chevrolet, a fat salary plus a brand new Corvette every single year. Nice work for a civilian. Alex whispers, better to have Chevrolet work for you than the other way around. I turn away and roll my eyes. We've got a good gig, and sponsorship, if the Army can be called a sponsor. We were all enlisted personnel when they started the experiments, and now that we've changed, the Army keeps us on the books for PR. We're like the USO. The super USO, maybe. Pat tells us to keep in touch, and that if the government gig doesn't work out, we should talk to his agent, because there's no doubt that the GM family would welcome us. Just not Chevy, he says. That's my turf. Patriot Paul Revere leans against the doorframe beside a little buffet table, offering a plate of apple danish and an urn of percolated coffee that's both burnt and stale. Paul is way too big, muscular big, for the flimsy modern furniture in the studio. He's almost seven feet tall now. His gray and blue stainless steel chainmail impregnated tights groan and creak as he shifts his weight from one leg to the other. When are they going to call us on? I gotta eat. I gotta eat real soon. Have a Danish, friend, Pat says. There's a whole plate of them right here. Diabetes, Paul answers. He frowns and pokes his huge fingers at the tray of sweet pastry. Crap. Hang on, Paul. I'll get you something. Frida Freedom darts out of the green room. Even though we've lived with her 24 hours a day for three years, we still watch her move. All of us do. Frida's body looks like it was carved on Mount Olympus. Her costume, with its short blue-and-white cheerleader-type skirt, shows off her sculpted legs. Her red-and-white top emphasizes her breasts. General Traster spent the most time on her costume, and you'd never know that it could stop anything short of a fifty caliber rifle bullet. Her slightly curly blonde hair bounces down to the split between her shoulder blades. I'm starting to twitch pretty bad now, and the burned coffee has only made it worse. One of the production assistants bursts into the green room and almost knocks down Pat Boone. One minute, Liberty League! Come on! Freda sprints in and pushes something into Paul's massive hands. I don't see what she brings, because it's in his mouth and down his gullet before I can blink. This'll have to hold me, he says after a short, soft burp. 
We follow the little bespectacled man out to the wings as Alan finishes his goodbye to Don Adams and starts into a little riff about Charmin toilet paper. Boone's right. It is all about sponsorship. Alan wraps it up quick and starts our intro. Tonight we meet America's newest super sensation. And boy, these kids are really something. The Liberty League. Super strong patriot Paul Revere. Super athletic Jim Jaguar. How do I even describe this guy? The capacitor. World's smartest man, Alex Nova. And finally, the last, and I must say the loveliest, of the Liberty League, Frida Freedom. He puts his hands up as if he's telling a secret to the audience. And watch those dirty thoughts, fellas. She'll hear them. We all walk out into blinding lights and deafening applause. Part 3. The Wake. 2006. Frida opens the door to the chamber where Alex's body lies in state. He's in a gilded casket, mahogany with gold scrollwork on the corners and the Union tricolor banner inlaid on the cover. I kneel before the casket and stare into my inevitable future. They've dressed him in his current costume, a conservative black suit with a red silk handkerchief tucked into the breast pocket. His folded hands clasp a black walking stick with a silver orb at the top. This is how most of the Union and the Normals will remember him, a soft-spoken old man with a wry smile and an easy laugh, almost like a grandfather. He worked hard to cultivate that image, but he's not the Alex I remember. They should have dressed him right. Frida laughs a little, then slips into silence. She's in her original duds, too, and even now she still fills them out perfectly. She leans heavily on her cane as she stands beside me at the casket. They didn't do so good hiding his wrinkles. He's old, Jim. We are old. I take Alex's cold, waxy hand in mine. We had a good run, my friend. I stroke his dyed blonde hair until my knees ache so bad I have to pull up on the casket rim to stand. He didn't suffer. We all suffered. I mean, he just went to sleep and never woke up. Peaceful. I never thought death could be peaceful. Alex was always the lucky one. Paul's diabetes did him in ten years ago. Alzheimer's disease took Stephen two years before that. Both were long and horrible deaths. I take Frida's hand and massage the soft skin just above her knuckles with my thumb. Even at eighty-something, just touching her flesh quickens my heartbeat. Her fingers close around mine. She asks, What do we do now, Jim? How do we keep going without him? Why should we? Frida doesn't come up with an answer right away. I... well... Part 4. The Liberty League. 1956. Alex eases the stick back, and our silver Sikorsky chopper lifts off from the helipad atop the studio. The lights of New York City shimmer beneath the prop wash as we climb up and over the skyline. The show went well. Paul began to look gray and drowsy from low blood sugar, but he managed to smile and laugh as we did our tricks for the audience. He finishes the sixth can of sea rations as we bank southeast. Southeast? That's not the way home. Where are we going? Glad you asked. Alex waves a manila envelope, then tosses it back into the crew compartment. I pop the envelope fold and slide out a thin stack of stapled papers. Orders. We haven't had orders in almost six months. General Traster's Manic signature sits at the bottom of each page. We haven't seen him in months. 
President Eisenhower dispatched the general to oversee security along the demilitarized zone in North Korea. We need to liberate some records from Fort Dietrich. Alex's voice echoes mechanically through the chopper's headsets. Not another security drill. Paul groans loud enough to drown out the engine noise for a second. The Joint Chiefs use us, on the rare occasions we aren't on tour, to test the infiltration readiness of Army bases. The usual plan calls for us to break in and snatch a single hard-to-find file, usually a supply order, shipping invoice, or some other piece of non-sensitive information. We've never tackled a place as big or as well-fortified as Fort Dietrich, though. So even though the others are complaining, it's good training for us, too. If things go bad in Korea again, or if China or the Soviets start rattling their sabers enough to start a fight, we'll be called in to raid their bases and deal with their security. We have to get in and out without a fuss. I scan back over the orders before passing them on to Frida. She'll memorize them for us and wedge them into our brains somewhere. A single file? Do you know how many files are in Dietrich? Don't worry. This will be a piece of cake. I even know which drawer it's in. Alex's confidence soothes my worries some. I unfold the map and aerial photos of the base. Traster circled Building 470 in red pencil and wrote LLRFM 415 beneath it. He circled another place, too, a little gray rectangle in the middle of the base. We fly for an hour until Alex brings the chopper down to treetop level. Hang tight, everyone. I've marked out a good touchdown spot, but it's going to be bumpy. He cuts the engine and lights, and we spiral in silently. I grab the loop riveted into the cabin ceiling as we bump twice, hard, onto the marshy ground. Alex pops his harness before the rotors stop and snakes back to where the rest of us wait. We'll break into two teams. Frida and Paul and Steve at 470. Top floor, third file cabinet from the left, second drawer. You see the file number, right? They nod. Jim, you're with me. I thought we were after the file. That and one other thing. Alex pops open the storage bins and drops bundles of black clothes to the cabin floor. Standard operating procedure. They can't know it's us. If you're captured, don't say a word. We'll circle back and retrieve. But don't get caught. Keep your beacons on. No radio chatter, not even an emergency. Alex touches a button on the center of his large belt buckle and turns to Frida. Put anyone to sleep within a hundred feet of you, and you should be able to just walk right in to 470. I'll get the file, she says. Paul, go easy on the GIs. There's an armory of Shermans north of the base center. We should be in and out before they even get one started, but if not, you know what to do. Paul smiles. I do, and I will. Steve, we'll need a big distraction eight minutes in. There's a transformer farm and power station to the east. Lots of sparks and thunder is good. Shutting the power down is better. I got it. Steve's thunder is the signal to get out. We'll regroup half a mile east of the chopper and deal with any stragglers on the way. I spread the map out on the floor. Looks like mines and barbed wire along the perimeter. Alex answers, don't worry. We're going in and out through the front gate. Part 5. The Wake, 2006. Frida stares into the casket. It wasn't any easier when we lost Paul and Stephen. She pauses for a moment, then lowers her eyes. No, that's a lie. I mourned them, but I never worried about a future without them. Why worry at all? It's time to let the Union go on without us. 
It won't be more than a couple of years, if we're lucky, before we're... Well, why not enjoy them like regular people? What, and go on a cruise? Run out the clock in Florida? I don't think so, Jim. Frida snickers. Seriously? I'm serious. I can put someone in charge in Salt Lake with one call. You can do the same for marketing and PR in New York. We've given our whole lives to the Union, and damn it, I want some of that back. I couldn't say that when Alex was alive. You know he was... We argued the last time. I don't even remember why. Some stupid little nothing. But he kept pushing and prodding until I didn't have a choice but to fight with him. He was bitter. I'm bitter, too. Freda knits her fingers together. You know Inner City is testing us every other month, and the U.S. government has threatened subpoenaing regular union members over concerns about recruitment and training. We're dealing with one family that's managed to beat us in court three times. She stares off for a moment. After everything we've done? After all the sacrifices we made? They want to take us to court? They want to break us up? And you too, Jim, with the why-should-we-continue crap? You know as well as me what would happen if we just gave up. I shrug. The world changed, and we haven't changed with it. I don't know. Maybe it's not that simple. We aren't exactly a model of decorum and transparency, Frida. I never figured the Union would last forever. I thought it would outlast us. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe it's time for something new, better suited to today, whatever that means. It's not fair to them. Who? The supers who manifest that we don't take in and train. We can do without them, and they can do without us. Frida's face drains of color. I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. Why? It's a realistic solution, and it'll solve some of our other problems with the normals, too. They should see what the world would be like if we don't operate the way we do. You don't know what you're saying. Even if we scaled back recruitment to allow a few potential supers to develop on their own, then what? What if a bunch of them get together as honest-to-God heroes, Jim? I glance over at the casket again. I wish Alex was here. He'd have an answer. His answer would be the same as always. Have faith in the myth. Cherish it. Protect it. And he'd be right. The myth? We've mollycoddled the normals for over fifty years, and what have we gained? Pyramids full of moribund characters, glorified firemen and PR flax, a public that is at best ambivalent, and at worst wants us cut apart and studied like lab monkeys. Some myth! Frida interrupts. The normals need us too. They just don't remember why, but they'll make enough mistakes, big mistakes, to keep us relevant. The normals don't deserve us. The normals never deserved us. Part 6. The Liberty League, 1956. We creep towards the gatehouse like five shadows. Frida waves us to a stop, then steps out into the full force of floodlights ringing the sentry. Two guards scramble out and raise their M1 rifles. Frida locks eyes with them. Boy, are you guys tired, she coos. I bet a nice long nap would feel great right now. The first soldier yawns and staggers back into the guardhouse. The other slumps beside the gate. Alex ties their hands and gags them, while Frida and the others go for the file. Where are we going? Just come on and watch for guards. Alex leads me deep into the base. 
Patrols are rigidly scheduled, so as long as we are in the right place when the guards walk past, we can move virtually unnoticed. Fort Dietrich is laid out like a small city, and I don't know my way around. Alex has no problem getting us near a nondescript gray concrete bunker. Two guards, he whispers. Two radios. Probably motion sensor lights, so we can't draw them out. I got it. I spring out, roll, and leap. One guard takes a full-on drop kick to the chest. He bounces off the concrete and crumples to the ground. The second guard draws a forty-five pistol, but I slam my hand down over the hammer before he can fire, encircle his neck with my free arm, and cut off his air. A second later, he joins his partner in Dreamland. Alex snatches up both pistols and slides them into his belt at the small of his back. What do you need those for? I drag both soldiers into their sentry hut in case anyone walks past. You never know, he whispers, and then starts working the bulkhead lock with a set of picks. There's a patrol every four minutes. We have to be out between patrols. The bulkhead door swings open, revealing a second door. This one isn't locked. Forty-five-gallon drums, six deep and twenty long, line both sides of the bunker. Each barrel sports a biohazard warning and batch number. Jesus, Alex! Weaponized anthrax. Don't touch anything. What the hell are we doing here? I grab his arm, but he tugs free and hurries into the deepening shadows. I follow through the maze of barrels until we reach a descending staircase that spirals down to another gray bulkhead fitted into another concrete bunker entrance. Alex runs his fingers along the flush edge of the bulkhead. Electromagnetic lock, he whispers, just like Traster said. What's in it? Just stay by the door. What I need is kept under lock and key in the back. Steve blows the electrical grid sky high. A tremendous boom reverberates through the base, and for three seconds, the whole place suffocates in darkness. We tug the bulkhead door open before the generators restore power to the electromagnetic lock. Red lights flood the bunker. Alex puts his finger to his lips, then hand signals for a 90-second countdown. If he isn't back by then, I'm supposed to leave for the rendezvous point outside the camp. The wind-up of an air raid siren filters down into the bunker. Come on, Alex, we're going to get caught! I scramble back up the steps and slip out the door into the shadows, just as what looks like an entire platoon scrambles past. Alex bursts from the bunker with an aluminum briefcase clutched in his right hand. He yells, SHIT, and skids to a halt. At first the soldiers don't notice him, as if they can't believe he just ran out right in front of them. But the effect doesn't last more than two seconds. Rifles come up and bullets tear through the air. I leap out and shove him across the road. Our armor can take pretty much anything short of an artillery shell, but it doesn't make being shot any more pleasant. We're at a full run for the main entrance when we meet up with Frida, Steve, and Paul. They also have what looks like a platoon in pursuit. Steve yells, Guess that spoils the surprise! Alex glances back. Paul, there's a jeep, too. No problem. Paul slows to a jog as the jeep careens down the narrow road to the main gate. He settles back, draws his right fist up under his arm, and slams it down through the hood. The frame hits the asphalt. The jeep stops dead in a cloud of white steam and a shower of sparks. The driver and passenger sail out of their seats and crash down on the grass ten yards away. Steve laughs as we charge through the gate onto the main road leading out of the base and towards a row of hotels and personnel housing. We cut left into the marshland darkness. Alex barks, Split up! Ten-minute countdown! There's a left exit, so watch your flanks!
Frida's voice floats through our heads. Last one in the chopper is a rotten egg. I leap up into the trees as the others scatter into the woody darkness. Moving through the boughs is tremendously liberating, and the Maryland forest is dense enough that I can swing from branch to branch like a gibbon. I keep close to Stephen, because he's the slowest of the team, and his sense of direction stinks. We're halfway to the chopper when a Sherman tank crashes through the underbrush. Stephen trips over a root on the soft ground and drops face first in the mud as the tank wheels around. I crouch only twenty feet or so up, but the tank crew can't see me. The captain pops out of the top hatch and brings the fifty caliber machine gun around. Don't move an inch! Stephen stands up, brushes mud and twigs from his chest and face, then raises his arms. Okay, you got me. I shield my eyes as Stephen flares a huge bolt of lightning at the tank. When I look down, Alex has doubled back and leaps onto the back of the tank. He slams the tank captain behind the right ear, then drops something down through the open hatch. A flash and pop, then pink smoke billows up from the tank. I leap down just as Alex draws two pistols and turns them on the squad of bewildered infantrymen struggling to clear retina burn from Stephen's flare. He fires at their feet, and the men panic and scramble into the woods. Come on! Alex grabs Stephen's arm and yanks him away from the tank. We all run toward the chopper. Paul and Frida are already inside and have the rotors turning. We leap in, and Frida lifts off. About time, Paul grunts. We ascend and disappear into the moonless night. Part 7. The Wake, 2006 The world isn't that much different now than it was when we were just getting started. Frida takes the most recent Union yearbook from Alex's shelf and opens it. We keep going because we owe it to them. This isn't 1974 anymore. I take the book and fan through the pages of masked faces. Only a small percentage of them show even a hint of a smile. There's enough of them complaining, too. I miss Mommy and Daddy. The food isn't good. Training is too hard. Why don't I learn anything useful like how to drive? Why can't I at least get my high school diploma? Why do I have to spend ten years as a second stringer? Why can't they custom design a character just for me? It's endless. I spend more time in Salt Lake counseling the new kids on how the Union isn't going to be anything like it says in the books or cartoons than I do training them to use their abilities. If it were up to me, I'd shut my end down. That's not fair, Jim. If we don't shape them, who does? We can't stand by and let the normals do to them what the Army wanted to do to us. We could fight back because we were adults, but these kids are just kids. That's the whole reason we started the Union in the first place. I pop open the briefcase and remove a stained and brittle manila envelope. LLRFM 415 is stamped across the front. I recoil from the envelope for a second. My fingers hover over the paper. What is it? I suck in a deep breath before unwrapping a coil of red string holding the flap closed. A thick sheaf of paper slides out into my fingers. It's our birth certificate. She freezes for a second, then stammers, Alex said he destroyed that file. He lied. I don't want to lie anymore, Frida. What do we gain by telling anyone? More questions from within? More challenges to our rights from outside? I answer, a clear conscience. Maybe a little peace. 
My conscience is clear, Frida says. She takes the file from my outstretched hand. There will be plenty of time for them to sort the history out later. When? Frida pushes the folder marked LLRFM415 into the folds of Alex's double-breasted black suit. Why not just destroy the file now? She's silent for a minute. Because they do have a right to know, but not yet. Not until the last of the Liberty League is lying there like Alex. Part 8. The Liberty League, 1956 Alex disappears into the mission-ready room almost as soon as the chopper touches down. We monitor the newswire stories and army communiques from a bank of linked teletype machines. There's always a little chatter after one of our raids. We usually chuckle over the accounts of our antics, as described by embarrassed base commanders, so a raid as big as Fort Dietrich should make for some hilarious reading. I stow my bullet-riddled black clothes, switch from armored costume to gray sweats, and collapse on the couch in the barracks' common room. Stephen cooks a dozen eggs, scrambled, with toast and sets a platter on the table. Frida and Paul, no doubt drawn by the smell of hot food, join us. Alex emerges about a half hour later. He brushes past me and pulls a bottle of orange juice from the refrigerator. Frida asks, Have you heard from General Traster? Traster's dead. Alex takes a long pull from the bottle. His chopper went down just south of the DMZ two weeks ago. The shock of this information hits us all at the same time, and for just a second, we all freeze, as if time careens back just enough for the news to echo in our skulls. The general had been like a father to us, a protector, a champion. Sure, we were all flash and sizzle, but he was the brains. My fists clench, and I leap over the table before I can control my panicked reflex. Alex hurls the glass orange juice bottle, but it sails past my head and shatters somewhere in the room behind. Paul yells, Why didn't you tell us? Alex raises his hands. Just hear me out, okay? I land a right cross on his jaw, and Alex goes down, flailing. Paul grabs me before I can land another shot and pins me against the wall with one massive hand. Stop it! Both of you! Frida steps between Alex and me. I shout, He fucking lied to us! I couldn't tell you. The general insisted. Alex rises slowly. He shakes violently and wipes a trickle of blood from the corner of his mouth. His voice drips with anger. But don't let me explain or anything, Jim. After all, we've got all the time in the world, right? You should have told us right away. Frida snatches a napkin from the table and hands it to him. Why did you lie? I didn't lie. I didn't say anything until I could. Frida forcibly calms everyone down. Paul relaxes his massive hand and frees me. Alex says, Our program has been cut. Our budget is gone. The army is going to require us to sit in quarantine for, quote, an indefinite period until they can assess that we pose no national threat. Alex dabs at the growing black and blue swell just above his lip. But that isn't the worst of it. Paul asks, What? What does that mean for us? They can't just keep us locked up. They won't. A division will be activated in one hour with orders to apprehend us at all costs. The army is already playing up our raid at Dietrich. There's a story on the AP wire about suspected communist spies dressed up as the Liberty League. 
We can't fight a division of soldiers. Steve joins Alex and peers out the window. Let them come. Paul slams his fist and palm together. Calm down, Alex says. We have the advantage. They don't know we are aware of the orders or the news story. Steve says, We can run for it. Stick together. Try and get to Canada or Mexico. It's not just us. Alex holds up a file folder. This was what Traster was worried about. That's why I couldn't tell you he died. We aren't the only five inoculated with the serum. He pulls a list from the stack of official papers. Two thousand others. I have the names and dosage listings, serum formula, activation procedures, and everything else here. Without this file, we don't have anything. No evidence, no history, no leverage. Two thousand? My mind races back over the long series of injections and tests that we five endured. Traster said we were the only volunteers. We were. The others aren't aware they've been given the serum. They never went through the activation steps. Alex spreads the papers out on the table. There's a chance none of them will ever transform like we did. I ask, how much of a chance? Alex shrugs. And if they do? We can't just let the government take them. Paul skims through the documents and starts handing them around. There's no guarantee they'll even change. I mean, if the serum isn't active, then there's almost no danger, right? Frida takes a couple of pages from Paul. And if they do change, what then? Alex skims through the smaller stack of test results and process descriptions. Those 2,000 others could be exposed by accident. He finds two stapled pink pages. Here, listen. The serum bonds at the chromosomal level, ensuring retention. Doesn't that mean it'll also be passed down, too? We might not have to worry about 2,000 infantrymen manifesting. We might have to worry about their kids and grandkids. As far as I know, this is the only file that lists the names of the subjects in the ongoing tests. If we can keep an eye on them, then we can protect whoever changes, whether it's the person on this list or the person's kids. How the hell do we watch 2,000 people at once? Alex fiddles with the curtains for a minute. Same as we have been, I guess. Watch the news wires, monitor television broadcasts. If kids start to change, it'll make news, and we'll know. Then cross-check with the names we have here. If only a couple of them change, we'll be able to predict who and when the others will transform. And if none of them do? I hand the last sheet around. Stephen says, Better we're prepared. Frida says, there must be someone we can talk to about this, who will listen and who has the power to do something. There is, but he won't listen willingly. Alex stares at Frida. He'll need to be convinced. She glances at each of us. I promised I'd never permanently corrupt someone. Alex puts his hands on Frida's shoulders. This is life or death, Frida. Leavenworth will be a vacation if they get their hands on us. We won't be locked up for long before they're cutting us apart to see why we are what we are. I shove Alex halfway across the room. Stop trying to frighten her. Christ, we were just on nationwide television. You don't have to do anything you don't want to, Frida. For all we know, Alex is lying to us now, too. Alex storms back, but hesitates before throwing a punch. You think they won't cut you up, too, Jim? Or Paul? Or Steve? 
Sure, all of America knows about the Liberty League now, but they won't remember long. We don't have much, but we can use that little bit of notoriety to our advantage. The army will be less likely to shoot us in the street now, but that only gets us so far. We need a way to protect ourselves. Hide? Frida asks. No, the opposite. Capitalize on our little bit of fame, and grow it until we're as household a name as Kleenex or Chevy. Build a myth that capitalizes on our powers and puts us above regular people and makes us untouchable. Frida says, You're talking about making us into gods, Alex. I won't do it. Why not? The Greeks had Hercules and Zeus, the Egyptians, Isis, Osiris, and the Pharaohs. The Romans had the god-emperors. China has Mao, the Soviets have Stalin, America has the almighty dollar. But they could have us too. A pantheon of super-people looking out for the society beneath them. At least, if we sell it right. How long have you had this plan in the works, Alex? Or was this your goal right from the beginning? This isn't about us. It's all about Alex Nova, right? I knew you had a god complex. Alex snaps, shut up, Jim, and let me finish. Traster and I studied every possible scenario should we have to break from the army, and cultivating the myth is the only strategy that doesn't end with one or all of us dead. I say, if we're going to go that far, why not just take over? I mean, since you're playing God and all. Alex raises his hands again. I don't want to run the show. Hell, I don't even want to run the Liberty League. I ask, since when do you run the Liberty League? I'm stepping up because right now someone has to. Alex glances at the others. This plan allows us to protect ourselves and any others who transform. But it'll only work if the regular people, the normals, believe we're looking out for them, that we're inherently good and virtuous, and that they can't touch us. Like Pat Boone said, it's all about the sponsors. Only we will be the sponsors, with business partnerships and merchandising to make our likenesses visible to the saturation point, perpetually visible and totally untouchable. But if we fight amongst ourselves, then we might as well just give up now. We have to trust each other. Frida asks, Can we trust you? That's the rub. I can't apologize any more than I already have. If you all want to believe this is some ego thing, fine. We'll just wait here until the army shows up and proves me right. We fall into silence. Alex pulls a sealed glass flask from a foam indentation within the case. Traster and me, we plan for this possibility. The science ends here either way. You liberated the paperwork. I liberated the last of the serum. They can't make any more of us. Not on purpose. The only detail left is what happens next. Do we give ourselves up, and possibly 2,000-plus others, because I broke your trust? Or do you give me one more chance to save us, and who knows how many others? Frida says, A shame the army owns the trademark to the name Liberty League. Stephen says, I'll throw in with you, Alex. Paul adds, Me too. The whole team stares at me. Alex says, all of us, or none of us, Jim. You choose. Fine, I say. But if you ever lie to me again, to us again, I'll kill you. Part 9. 
The Funeral Procession, 2006. The ceremony lasts four hours. Every active super from every pyramid marches solemnly down Broadway, behind Alex's casket. Hundreds of thousands of normals line the parade route, where four super-strongs shoulder the coffin from the New York Pyramid entrance all the way to Madison Square Garden. The spectators are so quiet, it's possible to hear the bagpipe dirge that leads the casket. Frida and I follow in an open-top horse-drawn wagon, with 347 costumed union members and three lines behind us. The union is everywhere you look. Alex lies in state for five days. Tickets are $20. Kids under five get in free. A line of mourners stretches around the outside of the garden. Many of them wear newly purchased, official-licensed Union Originals Liberty League costumes. We pay the three major networks for coverage at $10 million bucks per hour per network. We recoup the cost, plus $4 million in profit from advertising, and put that profit into a comprehensive Union retrospective, graphic novelization of the original Liberty League Army comics, and two, quote, unauthorized biographies of Alex Nova. Satellite simulcasts of the media blitz will run in every pyramid and the village for two weeks straight. Two days' worth of snippets run on the 24-hour INN News Network. The kids' cable network runs three straight days of Union Power Hour cartoons, and they've agreed to a rerun schedule in the critical 3 to 4.30 p.m. time slot. Adam Comics begins a reprint run of Union of Superheroes Volume 1 on high-quality stock. Slinger Toys does a keepsake set of 12-inch Liberty League action figures, plus a new run of the standard size 3-inchers. Frida expects preliminary orders for these products to exceed even the usual holiday season numbers. In death, Alex Nova restored the myth of the Union, while Frida and me turned his funeral into an infomercial. Alex would have loved it. And that was our story. We started buying the Union Dues stories in the first place because I found the moral complexity very appealing. You have good people trying to do good things in a bad environment, and they don't always make good choices. I think this one may be my favorite so far. And speaking of sponsorships... Many were infected. Infected with a disease that thinks. A disease that talks. And as the victims finally succumbed, a disease that walks. One man fought back. He resisted the voices. Perry Dossie carved out pieces of himself in a desperate attempt to survive. He won. But as Perry awakes in a government hospital, he realizes he can still hear those voices. It's not over. And now it's even worse because the infection has become contagious. Contagious is the bloody sequel to Scott Ziegler's horror thriller, Infected. Contagious is available in stores December 30th or reserve your copy now at scottsigler.com slash order. Get the book the day it comes out. Because if someone spoils the ending, you'll hate yourself enough 
to use the chicken scissors. I raved about Scott's book Infected when it came out in the spring. I've been reading an advanced copy of Contagious, and I'm loving it. It does everything a sequel should do. It turns the heat up, brings the good guys back, and makes the bad guys worse. I'll say more next week when I've finished it, but I wholeheartedly and personally recommend you pick this book up if you're looking for intelligent SF horror. I think I'm supposed to say something here about New Year's Day and resolutions and all of that, but I'm not feeling that so much. I don't do the resolution thing. If change is a good idea, it's a good idea any day of the year. I'm glad 2008 is over. I think I'm starting 2009 in a better place, and with much more understanding of myself than I started 2008. Will it be better? I hope so. And that's plenty about that. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I disagree with Pat Boone about many things. All other rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, please consider leaving a donation via the PayPal link at escapepod.org so we can continue to support our authors. Our music is by permission of Dai Kaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from Marshall McLuhan, who said, The modern Little Red Riding Hood, reared on singing commercials, has no objection to being eaten by the wolf. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun. <laughs>